Huh. Okay, so what's going on? Nothing much, man. Um, seems like the more I try to get into technology, the less I want to get into technology. So that's kind of where I am now. I as in, to... as in, it frightens you, or well, as in, like, as in, I carry a laptop, an iPad, an iPhone, a separate phone for a second business. So I literally have four different devices transmitting at any given time. My location. Bluetooth signals, Wi-Fi connections, just a monstrous amount of RF just running through my body at any given time. So I'm afraid I'm just going to get like some kind of weird techno disease and turn into, I don't know, Akira or something and start eating San Jose. It becomes oppressive at a certain point where you have so many devices to maintain that it's, I mean, you know, like these people, I see these um, everyday carry people, you know, like yeah, yeah. all the stuff. You know, some people, their everyday carries are logical. It's like a knife, a watch, phone. But then I see these other people, and I'm like, where the fuck are you carrying all this stuff? Like, <laughs> do you have, like, a little cart that you're dragging behind you? Like, that's not everyday carry. That's just a list of shit you like. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, to be honest with you, like, even, God, most people I know carry, yeah, like, there's there might be things in their bags that they might use once a week, but they always have it with them. You know right. what I mean? Um, like, that's why, you know, whenever you post things about your stuff, like, your bag seems inherently logical to me because that's stuff you literally use every single day. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't want it if I don't. It pisses me off. I was I was reading, I don't know if I was reading or I was listening to something the other day, and somebody was talking about the idea of, like, we just have to accept that uh, eventually the, in the future it's going to be uh, different iPads on the desktop. You're going to need multiple screens. And I'm like, that sounds dumb. That sounds horrible. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I want to live in there. There's, like, if you go back and watch, like, old, not old, but, uh, you know, 20, 30-year-old technology pre-tablets, when they're faking what a tablet will be like, that's yeah. what they do. You know, they're exchanging, here's the history tablet with the, you know, the astrophysics tablet. They mm -hmm. did that in Star Trek, The Next Generation. Sure. They were exchanging tablets because they didn't inherently understand how they work. And we haven't learned how they inherently work yet. Well, I mean, the funny thing, too, is, I mean, you see things like, uh, God, Apple Share. Um, is that what it's called? Apple Share? Which one? The ability to send images and files and stuff like that back and forth. Between. Oh, AirDrop? Oh, AirDrop, that's Piece right. Piece of shit that never works? Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's supposed to make our lives easier, but trying to get AirDrop to properly work among multiple devices <laughs> in the same Wi-Fi environment is such an endeavor in and of itself that using the technology just becomes, using or figuring out the technology just, be, just becomes more frustrating than it's worth. Oh, for example, my MacBook Air there is old enough that it'll do airdrop from computer to computer, but it refuses to airdrop with the phone. You know, the, Why? the software doesn't allow that. So I'm like, well, then airdrop means shit to me. Yeah. So what's the point? Well, not only that, but from device to device, I mean, I, I know what you mean. Like the thing you said earlier, like the moment you get to, especially if you're in the Apple ecosystem, for example, okay, so an iOS update comes out and an OS X update comes out and you literally are updating five different devices on the same day to make sure that they all still work. And most of the time, especially with the OS X updates, there's always some inherent bug that they didn't quite catch before it comes out. So now you're, you're two and a half days without your technology working properly until they patch whatever screw up they did in the, the update in the first place. So what the, why? <laughs> I, will, I will say this, having bought the Surface Pro and stepped outside of the Apple ecosystem, as much as those little bugs are annoying, Apple is still drastically ahead of everybody else as far as reliability. This, the Windows 10, I liked it. I told you about it, actually. You, you installed it because yeah, I told yeah. you about mm -hmm. it. I like it. Every time they update it since I bought the Surface, 
it gets worse. Like right now, if I if I sleep the device, you know, like I close the little typeface and I close the device, yeah, it sleeps it. When I open it, it's supposed to turn the display back on. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen anymore. I have to restart the device every time I put it to sleep. Oh, that's annoying. And yeah, it's you... been two updates in a row. You know what's really weird about that though is that like. I don't understand why, like, let's, let's just take technology for what it is. No one ever comes up with anything that new unless it's just a radically different technology, right? So R&D essentially stands for rip off and duplicate. Right. So if that's the case, why the heck can't someone rip off and duplicate Apple's ecosystem properly? I don't understand why it's that hard to reverse engineer it. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, sure, like, the Apple guys are probably smart and they're good at what they do. But they can't possibly be that smart. I mean, it's made by humans. It can that's, be broken that's why I'm, like, I'm baffled by – two things I'm baffled by the Windows ecosystems. First of all, I'm like, Windows was around first. Yeah. Shouldn't this shit be working better <laughs> because you've been doing it longer? Who the fuck are you paying to code this stuff? And the second thing is, like – the apps are fucking ugly oh. in Windows. And I'm like, dude, can't you just look at the way the apps are made in micro in Microsoft, in Apple, and go, that looks nice. Let's do something like that. But instead, like, they have, like, this aesthetic that it's not even them. It's the third-party people developing for Windows. They just mm-hmm. don't give a shit what it looks like. Yeah. And I feel like that's probably part of the reason that Windows has gone down in popularity is reliability quality testing which is what apple that's why it's not that they're smarter they have the quality testing sure and then it's also aesthetic you know like these it's like windows the developers are going ah we have a computer that we can modify that's all we give a shit about well i give a shit about something feeling good when i use it well i mean you know what the other side of that too is uh you know in my in my my previous work environment like we were we were developing an ios app um, and I remember how, how annoying I thought the SDK was, um, the, you know, software developer kit for, for Apple, because it had so many rigid standards as to what you could do or couldn't do when right. it came to their design, when it came to functionality, when it came to updatability, all of those things were vastly annoying, but I completely understand why it was necessary to keep such a tight rein on it. And sure, developing in that environment means you have to follow Apple's rules. But there's a reason why when you open the fucking iPhone, everything works properly. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? And everything everything has kind of a continuous aesthetic and functionality flow that makes logical sense from one app to the next. So as annoying as I thought that was, I, I can't imagine developing, like, let's say you have a, a Windows phone. I mean, that's probably why the Windows phone and Android phones are not as popular. Because... If you're not a nerd, and I'm talking about a fucking nerd who will sit there and update, modify, change, and completely, in some senses, redo your apps from the inside out, right. you're just not going to take the time. I mean, even for a guy like me, I'm kind of a techno nerd, but I just want to turn my shit on and have it work. Right. You know, it's, it's, and I think that's why paper is still prevalent, is because sometimes you open a device and there's so much logistical bullshit involved to do something simple like i need to remind myself to buy eggs i'm not going to waste my time trying to make sure that siri understands me because she's an idiot yeah and i'm not gonna go i'm not gonna unlock my phone go to the right screen go to the folder that i need to go to open the app get to the right screen push the button and put in at i'm gonna write it on a piece of paper and i'm done in four seconds sure and until they figure that out we're always going to be fighting our devices instead of utilizing them and I think ultimately that's the intention. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that 
once they once Siri becomes the the all inclusive assistant that we all have been waiting for and wanting, right. that it's just not going to ever be more efficient than a tactile process that allows us to sit there and fit. and plus to be honest with you, even for a guy like me, and maybe it's just because I'm an old school fuddy duddy, but I find the process of writing something um, makes me remember it anyway. You know what I mean? Well, like actually the, the actual physical proof process. That it of it. Does. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, there's there's a tactile feel to to the process itself. So I have the muscle memory as well as the actual memory to, to prompt me to do a certain action. So it makes sense. What are your thoughts on Alexa? <sighs> you know what? I feel, I feel like Alexa like I do with, with all of the – like with Apple TV. Um, you know, here's the problem with a lot of these technologies. They're at the very, very infancy. And we forget that as, right. as a consumer base is that most of these things are no older than two or three years. And yeah. most of them have been developed for less than five and so, because of that, most of the the, the, the function you know the functions the, the 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 functionality the usability of these things is not nearly as 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 complex as we want it to be because we have the expectation that they're supposed to make our lives easier, but we are the guinea pigs. We are the people who are supposed to tell these companies why they're fucked up so they can fix them and make them the ubiquitous badass assistants that we want them to be. Right. You know what I mean? I think that um, first of all, there's an inherently scary thing about Alexa. Alexa's actually super smart from what I've seen, like way more um, able to understand natural language than any of the other ones, except for maybe Google now, which seems pretty smart. Yeah, that's interesting, yeah. Uh, but the scary part to me is there's no screen for confirmation. Mm -hmm. So for, you know, like play me an audio book, I don't need that. That's awesome. If you have Audible, being able to ask this little cone to play you a book, that's cool. Sure. Um, but when it's asking you to order something from Amazon through mm -hmm. it, when I have a full computer in front of me, I end up finding the wrong product. <laughs> I don't know that I'm willing to trust that this little black conical thing is going to order the right vitamin for me because when it arrives and it's the wrong thing, I've already paid for it. Sure. Or, and I'm not going to go through the process of like looking after I've made the order and going shit, wrong item. Cancel order. At that point, what is the point of it? Yeah. And I don't know how Amazon has so much stuff on there with, where, with minute differences. You know, this is a 60-count Berberine. This is 20-count gel pill Berberine with, uh, you know, uh, cinnamon, Ceylon cinnamon added to it. Mm. How do you get that across? to? to a, and that, that's why I think that um, even though I hate Facebook with a passion... Uh, I think the idea of, I think their assistant that they're working on is called M. Yeah. The idea of the text message assistant, that works way better for me. First of all, there's no worry about um, language mm -hmm. and understanding because it's all it has to do is read the words. Sure. And having the visual confirmation of everything, I think that in the long run, to me, that's more appealing. Mm -hmm. I just don't know... Are we are we in a in a war between voice and text right now? Is that what's going to happen? Well, I think part of it too is that we just don't inherently trust the technology yet. Um, and I think you know, obviously, with your 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 example, like I have, I had a really similar situation to that just literally two hours ago, which was, you know, um, I'm trying to order um, my girlfriend who is soy and dairy um, allergic. Um, you know, she has she's allergic to those two things. Like we were trying to find her a certain cookie that she could eat. And there's one company that does produce um, a soy-free, gluten-free cookie um, with no dairy. And the problem, though, is 
I went to look for a double chocolate chip cookie. And when I went to Amazon to look for a double chocolate chip cookie, there were at least 15 different permutations of just that particular order and that particular cookie from that company. Right. And it's being sent from five different sources. So, and, and the price ranges were so wildly different. Like if I said, yeah, buy, this one has prime, this one doesn't have yeah, prime. Yeah, exactly. and it doesn't have prime. This one has free shipping. This one does include tax. This one doesn't include tax. So I could have easily just, I could have just as easily ordered a $5 pack of cookies or a $50 pack of cookies, called it the same thing. And without some kind of confirmation, I wouldn't know until I got a giant ass box of cookies right. that I'd ordered the wrong one. So I understand what you're saying. Like, I mean, and I think part of it too is that there's not really enough of an emphasis on clarity when it comes to how those systems without text confirmation are supposed to work. And I think a lot of that is because of what I talked about earlier, which is all of this stuff is kind of in its infancy. Like we don't really know what the most useful way is to use this technology is yet. You know what I mean? So for, for, for our purposes, like especially with Amazon, geez, dude, until Amazon figures their shit out, we're not going to be able to use it because we're not going to be able to figure out what they haven't even figured out yet. Exactly. You know what I mean? And it's, it's like, um, and it's just going back to Apple. Apple introduces features and they go, people are going to love this. You know, they think, and then nobody uses it. <clears throat> you ever use the voice, sending your voice messages within uh, iMessage that they added last year? Unless I'm doing some kind of impression of Christopher Walken or I'm making fun <laughs> of somebody... Or I'm I'm recording a fart noise in a bathroom and sending it to my friends. No, I've never actually me. used it. Yeah, that might have been you. <laughs> but yeah, yeah you're I right. I used it I've once used when it. it first came out to Brandon. Yeah. What is this? And <laughs> probably making fart noises. Yeah, exactly. And then you know, like uh, the swipe left screen. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, is that what it's called? Swipe left screen. Whatever. The zero screen. Yeah. Where it has the supposedly the news, but it doesn't let you decide what kind of news is mm -hmm. in there so you're just you're supposed to preset a preference or something like that and yeah. it's supposed to send you the news it thinks you want yeah and, and tells you the people it thinks you want to talk to and the apps you want to use i never look at that number one it's not usually the app i want to use because are we really that predictable with apps like oh it's three o'clock he needs his uh, YouTube app. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't watch YouTube at the same time every day. I'm never going to. Well, plus that's THX waiting to happen. You know what I mean? Like, we might as well be saying our confessions into a, a, you know, I'm not religious by nature, but I might as well be confessing to a robot at that point. You know right. what I mean? Like, I don't want my devices to know that much about me. Right. Nor do I want to get to the point where I'm so predictable and so apathetic or complacent that I trust a fucking machine to make that choice for me. And you know what, what baffles me too is like I've thought a lot about user interface and which makes me sound like a designer or a developer and I'm neither. Uh, but uh, there's an app on the phone that's been around for a while called Drafts. I think I've showed Oh, yeah, I've seen Drafts, yeah. Drafts is brilliant because what you need to do, you go to that and you type in what you need and then you decide where you want it to go after that. And that seems to me that the way that the phones should be an interface is what you go to should be what do you want, and then it decides how, what you need to use that. You know, you decide from there. Mm -hmm. Like, let me get the words that I need to say out, mm -hmm. and then say send that to Lamb. Sure. Send that to Twitter. Sure. Let me do those things first, because that's the priority. You know, how many times? I don't know if it happens to you, but it happens to me. I open my phone, and I'm looking at the apps, and all of a sudden I go. What was I looking for? Mm, what yeah. was I? What was I going to do? What was I, like? Like I have you know, Alzheimer's. <laughs> Alzheimer's. I would say it wrong. 
But, you know... <laughs> There's an irony to you saying Alzheimer's wrong, but yeah. <laughs> it's like the modern equivalent of the old man walking into the room and going, why did I come in here? Sure, sure, That's sure. me and my phone. I look at my phone and go, why did I come in here? Yeah. And it's because that barrier is in the wrong place. Sure, sure, sure. The barrier to what to do with the information should be at the end once you've already... You know, because your working memory is limited. Sure, sure, sure. So it should work towards the working memory, which is a bit redundant. Well, I think what we're 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 talking about ultimately is over automation versus under automation. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that 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 part of the part of what all of these technology companies, whether you're talking about Alexa or you're, whether you're talking about Siri or any of these M, you know, the whatever the heck the IBM one is, Hound, um, the new yeah, one. Yeah, exactly. They, what I think the, the what all of these companies are trying to figure out is how much automation is too much automation, and how how many assumptions can we make about our users, and what information do we need in order to make logical and intelligent assumptions that will actually be useful. And all of those how things can they are, make money? Over yeah, exactly. It. And how can we make money? And all of those things, all of those questions, are all brand new questions. Right. You know what I mean? And and when I say brand new, I'm talking about this isn't even this isn't even more than a year old for most of these companies. So for most of these things, it's about developing and building a whole new type of technology and how it will be used by the customer base in such a way that still generates revenue but still achieves a level of automation and easiness that makes it so that people will want to use it. Like, you know, a, a good example of that is, you know, when cell phones became smartphones, there was that weird in-between period. There was that weird two-year right. period where people were adding features, removing features, fucking around with features that made no logical sense, you know, um, using integrated OSs, allowing for open source software. I mean, everybody tried everything. And ultimately, Apple was the only one that said, okay, everyone shut the fuck up. We're just going to do it this way, and you're going to try it. And if you like it, then we'll keep doing it this way. But this is as close as we've gotten to figuring out how to not piss everybody off. Right. When it it's comes the to rough using... edge of technology. Yeah, it's the rough edge of technology. And we're literally on the roughest edge of one of the newest technologies in human history. And know? the development is just, the, the acceleration of the development is just beyond our capabilities of understanding. It's, it's like Ray Kurzweil says in, in the, the Singularity is Near, mm -hmm. you know, when people normally draw the curve of innovation, it's a gradual line up. Mm -hmm. And he says it doesn't happen like that. As you go further into technology, it becomes steeper to a point where it almost becomes up and down. Sure. Because with every technology, new technology you create, mm -hmm. you accelerate the ability to develop the next technology. Mm -hmm. uh, creating something with an abacus compared to creating something with that five-year-old MacBook Air. Sure. They now... I can make something, we'll say I can make something in five hours with that MacBook Air. If I had the new one, I might be able to do it in four. Sure. So your curve keeps getting sharper. And I think at a certain point, the human ability to adapt mm -hmm. is out the window. Sure. At what point do we go, you know, like exactly what you were saying. You just want it to work. Like, it's because it exhausts us. Well, not only that, but the other side of that too is it's not just that I want it to work, but I want to have context for it. Right. You know, I want to have an understanding of why it works the way that it does and why it's supposed to make my life easier. Like, I mean, for, for a guy like you, for example, you're, you know, you're a part-time web developer. And um, I think about, you know, what can be achieved now with Squarespace and WordPress that couldn't have been achieved 10 years ago. Right. You know, I mean, you think about the level of expertise you needed in order to program in, in Java and HTML and XML and, and uh, with a PHP or SQL background. Like most, most of those acronyms thrown out to people these days makes their head spin because right. I could literally just jump on a Squarespace right now 
pay five bucks and have a functioning website within an hour that's really good. You know I think to, I mean? this, to this day, I've made seven professional websites for businesses. And I still don't know what the difference between <laughs> HTML and CSS is. Yeah, how much? How much? Oh, well, which you one's coded, which, man? and which one do I use at that time? Yeah. I have to Google it every time I get stuck in that scenario. Mm -hmm. But that's because I can work with those template-based things. But there's a great example of the rough edge of technology that you're talking about with websites. Mm -hmm. When they first came out, Ugh. you remember, like everybody had those crazy intro videos, and oh, they yeah. had music playing in the back. Just useless shit. <laughs> and it took like years for people to go, oh, when you don't crowd everything onto the page and have like seven sidebars and, you know, boxes here and boxes there, you just center everything and you give a lot of space, which is almost every Squarespace template is based on that principle. You have a better website. You get rid of all the stuff that doesn't load fast. And, and, so now we're, the websites are becoming polished, like exactly what you're saying. Well, I think it comes back to good design, too. I mean, that part of the problem with web designers when they were starting to, to design is that I think, I think the, 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 na the title of web designer is a misnomer, especially early on in the development of the Internet, because you didn't have designers. You just had developers. Right. Because good designers have always known that clean typography, white space, logical flow have all been part of good design very I mean, good point you know look at look at design for the last hundred years and we're basically just coming full circle websites are now just being well designed and not just well developed you and know it, I mean? maybe that's because when it first came out you had technology people doing websites yeah, of course and now you have artists yeah sure doing websites yeah you know you have a graphic designer whether people want to accept it or not a graphic designer is an artist mm -hmm. they use different tools Tools that I am not comfortable using personally. I'm not. I, I I don't like Photoshop. It's too difficult for me. It involves too much. I prefer pen and paper. But that doesn't make them not artists, you know. Sure. But actually, one of the things I was going to bring up today, that Intuos Five Touch tablet that I've had for years that I could never get the hang of because I can't get used to the idea of drawing on this surface and seeing it somewhere and, else. And seeing it somewhere else. I just couldn't do it. I could never draw with it. I just found out yesterday. I actually knew this, but I just remembered yesterday that you can use it for video editing. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And it's better. It's yeah. faster because I, I spent last night, okay, ripple delete for this button, you know, uh, option modifier for this button, setting it up, scrubbing with the, with the wheel, and I'm like, I haven't tried it yet. When I edit today's vlog, I'm going to use it, have it set up. I'm hoping it's going to be as awesome because then it'll give me a purpose for owning that device. Uh, the guys on, I think it was Cortex, were talking about how they use that yeah. to edit a lot of things. So I'm hoping maybe uh, it's exactly what you're talking about. Maybe that's the context I needed Yeah. for video editing, maybe even editing this. Although, unless one of us throws up or has a <laughs> coughing fit in the middle of this, I don't imagine cutting anything. Well, I mean, from what you said, too, I mean, it's, it's funny because slowly but surely I'm starting to discover the right context for certain tools. Like, for example, um, you know, I'm, I'm, when I think about my own writing, um, you know, when I think about putting creative ideas together, I think better in a nonlinear space. Right. Um, and so because of that, I, I like to walk around. I pace when I think about, you know, um, about, about stories or, or, or ideas or whatever it is. So I, do the same. I have a tendency to want to just speak into the ether. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I, I have a feeling that at some point, if I under, if Siri or one of these other, you know, Alexa or any of the technologies become smart enough to understand 
what I'm trying to say and how I'm trying to say it, then I can create visual representations of my ideas. And I think that's really exciting. Mm -hmm. If it can pull that off, you know, right. if I can say, for example, um, you know, like if I'm talking to Siri and I can say, okay, this idea is a blue idea, you know what I mean? And I can, I can say whatever that idea is. And this idea is a red idea and it goes with this other red idea. Right. And they can start to put together tapestries of, of you know, my, my creative thoughts or whatever it may be. And I think that's a really exciting possibility, but I don't even, I don't even know how far off we are from that. You know well, what I mean? I think ultimately with Siri and all this stuff, what we're really working towards is the ship's computer on the next generation. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> because that thing seemed to understand everything. You know, sure. they like, play music and it was always the right song. If I did that right now, I'd be like, Siri, play music. And I'm like, oh, really? Yeah. And like, I do not want to hear Sublime, ever. <laughs> Can you at least learn that? Yeah, or, or because you, you listen to, to NoFX once in your life, all of a sudden it's <laughs> pulling some fifth song off a third album that you've never heard of in your life. Yeah, it's you like know? these Netflix, like, oh, you might be interested in this, in this thing. I'm like, I've rated probably... 7,000 movies with you guys over the years yeah. and you still can't figure out what I fucking yeah, like. Yeah, you still think I want to watch The Transporter. Yeah, you, know? you, still, <laughs> you still didn't realize it took me six years to give in and decide to watch Friends for the first time. Yeah, like, <laughs> God damn it, I don't want to see any more Jason Statham. <laughs> finally, finally you were right. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> oh, Netflix Netflix is a whole different topic, though. I don't even understand how their algorithms work. I have two relatives that work at Netflix who can't tell me what the hell the I don't algorithm think is all about. I don't think they've changed them. They just came up with the original one. It feels like they haven't improved it. It's not awful. Yeah. And maybe that's why. It's like, who gives a shit? Because you know what? We're, that's not a place where automation matters to us. Well, and especially with a place like Netflix. I mean, it's not like their subscriber base is going down. So they have no, they ha they have no motivation. Because let's put it, I mean, for a company like Netflix, they're making money. Right. And their whole goal is to make money. So and if they're there's providing no reason, exactly what we yeah, want. Yeah, exactly. And if there's no Please. reason to spend more money to make some, a tool better, then why bother? You know? Right. You know, I've had this idea recently. Let me throw this out to you. So we have all these technology companies creating things that are cutting edge. Sure. You know, Apple's introducing a new thing. Apple used to be the company that was a little bit behind because they would perfect things. Mm -hmm. Now they're in the race with everybody else. Sure. Trying to make something new that's cutting edge. The awful iPad Pro. Um, you don't like it? I hate it. Really? It's, wow. It, it feels like a child's toy. With the, those icons are so huge, I oh, pick yeah. it up and I'm all, I feel like an idiot. <laughs> and then plugging <laughs> plugging that that pencil into the side. That it, I know. I just can't deal with it. I'm like, it doesn't have an eraser. Fuck you. Yeah. I have to. Like, yeah, that eraser shit's weird. I have to I give my iPad that. an erection to <laughs> to charge it. <laughs> which at what point is somebody going to smack that thing and break it off in the lightning? I'm port? sure it's happened. Ah, uh, I'm sure and, it's happened today. And there's no clip on it, so it just roll off the goddamn desk. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the one reason that I went with the Surface, mm -hmm. the pen. Yeah. Even though like now I use it only twenty percent of the time, mm -hmm. but it's magnet. It sticks to the side. I have a place to put it. The Apple Pencil has no place to be put, yeah. except your pocket. It's got an eraser, mm -hmm. which is also a button. It's got a clip. I mean, it, as far as like writing on a device, it works for me. I, I'm kind of shocked that Apple didn't figure all that out, though. You know what I, I mean? feel like the last year, Apple just like put up their middle fingers, and everything that they made, other than this new Apple TV, mm -hmm. was shit. Well, you know what it is, though? I think it's because, and, and I remember, God, I forget who I was talking to. One of my friends who used to work at Apple um, used to be pretty high up there. He's part of the iMac development team. And I remember talking to him and, and asking him, you know, so what do you think is going to happen to Apple after the death of Steve Jobs? Um, and he, there's a reason he doesn't work at Apple. He works at Tesla now, but there's a reason he doesn't work at Apple anymore. And he says it's because 
in a company like Apple, you have a singular, when Steve Jobs was part of the equation, you had a singular focus. You had a, a through line as to where you wanted the technology to go and what you wanted it to do. Right. Um, and with the death of that, or Steve Jobs, Apple... <laughs> you almost called it, yeah, right? Which the is essentially the same thing. Um, <laughs> that, that the product cycles would just become chaotic and that the product development would just become a, a scattered mess of decent ideas not implemented well. You know what I mean? And so because of that, like I think that um, it, it's, it's a very good example of how vision, a lack of vision can create a bad set of products and slowly spiral a company towards mediocrity. You know and, what I mean? and I think it's, to a certain degree, it's, it's pandering to stockholders too. Yeah. Whereas, you know what, most stockholders mm-hmm. are idiots. <laughs> yes. There's a reason that they're a stockholder and not a company owner. Sure, sure. Because they have ideas, but their mm-hmm. ideas don't necessarily have a logic. Not all of them are idiots, obviously. Sure. But for the most part, when you start pandering to that audience, all they want is something that's going to make them immediate money. Well, I mean, if they're not look- looking for the long term on the company. Sure. And if you look at a guy like Steve Jobs, what made him who he was? He didn't give a shit. Yeah. Fuck he did you it his way. Yeah. Said. Fuck you. This is what I Here's know you need. Yeah. Bite me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants oh, to buy it. Oh, I don't fucking care. <laughs> yeah. But if not for the Newton, we don't have an iPhone because touch interfaces as we know it wouldn't exist. Right. So. I mean, everything that that guy foresaw mm-hmm. to some degree came to fruit. I think that's why he became such an icon to a lot of us that we were reading his book after he's dead. Mm-hmm. Um, he was wrong on a few things. Like sure. skeuomorphic design was fucking ugly. Nah. <laughs> Like, why do I have a game center with green felts on it? This is stupid. Dude, even the Rolling Stones write shitty songs, man. <laughs> That's what it comes down uh, to. Since 1984. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, okay, so the idea I was going to throw out to you. Hmm. Everybody's on this cutting edge of technology. What do you think if a company came out and said, hey, our shit's not new. We're just perfecting year-old, two-year-old technology. But everything that we make works perfectly. Huh. We don't have the new features, but everything we make is fucking flawless. Because what happens with these development cycles is, oh, here's a new feature. Mm-hmm. They work until it, until it's pretty good, but then there's something new, and then they work till that's pretty good. There's never that sense of like, you know, like the Japanese sense of like uh, perfecting something. You know, like in Hero Dreams of Sushi, the documentary where he talks about spending. How many months or years God, just learning years, how to cook yeah, rice? Yeah, because you have to learn to do it exactly right. Mm-hmm. I kind of think there's a market for that, especially sure. if they're selling it for cheaper. You know, like your average American doesn't need the cutting edge stuff. What they need is something that works. Mm-hmm. And you know, like if it's you know a 75 year old woman, all she wants to do is check her email, sure, and play around on the internet a little bit. Mm-hmm. Here's a two hundred dollar computer. The technology that's in it is two years old. But it works perfectly. She never has to call a tech. Mm-hmm. She never has to restart because of a bug. Mm. That's interesting. I mean, it's funny because, you know, between you and I, God, most half of our friends are just huge tech nerds that work in the tech industry. And some because of the most, we're in Silicon Valley. Yeah, exactly. And they work in some of the most cutting-edge companies, but even they get frustrated with their own technology. You know, like I think of, um, you know, one of my friends who... who is building a Linux server, and I and I look at how much he struggles just to do normal things. Like I just want my Linux server to store all my all my images. Well, okay, there's a company out there called Dropbox that has already figured that out, so you can upload right. it to a cloud and keep it there instead of trying but to maintain to a for damn that. Linux server. But I have to pay for it, and I have to blah blah blah. Yeah, but the time that you spent, to how much is your time really worth to you? Is what that question ultimately comes exactly. down to. You know what I mean? And for a company like you describe. 
where everything just works. God, if that saves me two hours a day, yeah. I can't imagine what the fuck else I would do with those two hours. Because right now, I'm still struggling with my own technology. You know, like today, for example, like something went haywire with my Bluetooth in my car and it took me another 15 minutes in my car to figure out how the hell to connect my phone <laughs> back to my car again. Bluetooth is just a nightmare in general. Ugh, it's, and not only that, but there's so many security holes. On, but that's a whole different conversation. Oh, yeah. In one of the companies I previously worked for, it was literally trying to develop ways to plug security holes in Bluetooth. So, I mean, no, I know firsthand how shitty that can be. You know what I mean? But, I mean, I, I think that there's a huge market for what you're describing. I just think that... that where it will become successful is that you have to f- force people into it. And what I think, right. what, I, what I say by that is, you know, the way we operate as Americans, I mean, I work in the golf industry now, so there are very clear indicators of that in my industry, which is they want the latest, they want the greatest. Not necessarily the best, just the latest and greatest. Right. And I think that that's the question that we really have to ask is, do we want the best or do we want the latest and greatest? Because the best always fucking works. Or the most reliable. Yeah, or the most reliable. Like, what if your what if your internet had one hundred percent uptime, and had, you know, uh, literally the most consistent internet speed, most predictable consistent internet speed that you could possibly want? But it's no faster than I don't know two megabits. Let's just say, let's just call it that. Right. Would you rather have that, or would you rather have a connection that's capable of six megabits? that doesn't work half the time, that has a 98% uptime in general and is just overall wonky when it comes to your speed. Which would you rather have? Right. You know, and for Americans right now, it's like, oh shit, I can download, you know, this two gig file in five hours. Let's do that. But what the fine print doesn't tell you is you can only do that three days out of every month because of the rest of the time, it's just fucked up. Right. And I I feel like that that's what's missing is that market for that bottom end of, of technological advancement with a maximum of reliability. I feel mm-hmm. like that's, you know, like phones. Like 75-year-old woman is probably not going to rock out on the new features of an iPhone. Sure. They usually end up buy- getting the free one, which mm-hmm. is three years old. Yep. And that's probably as close to what we're talking about. Or maybe the jitterbug. Sure. You remember that thing? Yeah, the jitterbug. Jeez. <laughs> what a funny device that hey, is. They, they probably made a fair amount of money. Oh, I'm sure they're making a killing. I'm sure they're still making a killing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you speaking of things changing over time what are your thoughts on the way that social media has been developing <sighs> well I mean as all things do like I mean if you look at Facebook I mean, you and I are barely ever on Facebook anymore god I used I look at Facebook maybe twice a week now um, it just makes me angry when I go on there because it's people that I like mm-hmm. saying some of the most ridiculously ignorant political things I saw two yesterday on accident, and I, I can't get like these out of my head. It's almost like it makes me hate the people that I care about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of tough. I mean, I mean from, from a business perspective, I, I get some of them. Like Instagram, for example, I'm using for two businesses that I'm helping with. So, I mean, I guess for the eyeballs, it's useful. But as a medium for actual social media, I don't really... I don't really understand how it's supposed to make me closer to the people I really care about. It's a no interaction. I think that's the thing. When it first started, it was very much um, art driven, in my opinion. Sure. It was almost all artists and like beautiful models. Mm -hmm. And then it became more popular. And then it became like this. It was social for a while. Like you remember for a while, all of us were communicating with each other through Instagram Mm -hmm. before they even had the private messaging. We were just doing it in comments. Sure. Now it's become to me, an ad stream. Mm-hmm. We're all advertising ourselves. Sure. 
uh, and I think that's how it's developed. And people say, you know, like, hey, Instagram's a great way to sell things. I'm like, it's kind of proving my point. That's, I, I, like I was telling you when we were talking last, that's what I like about Snapchat right now. Sure. Snapchat started as, I think, it seems like something for kids mm-hmm. to just goof around with. And um, or the occasional dick picture. That's, that's, I think that was <laughs> yeah. the second stage of development. Yeah, yeah. Was the, oh, this is a great way to send well, I, I guess genitalia. Snapchat, yeah, Snapchat went through puberty, I guess. I'm, I'm actually upset that I missed that phase. Uh, oh god! Well, I, yeah. Not that I want to send me. Yeah, don't but don't, don't get me wrong. It. Though there's good and bad that came from that phase for all of us. I would have liked a few breasts to come through. No, I hear you. Uh, <laughs> uh, but now I I find that it's reaching the point where um, people who take uh, this is a weird way to phrase this people who take social media a little more seriously, mm-hmm. not people who call themselves gurus and all that bullshit, but people who actually use it as a form of engagement. Yeah, there's. It's very engaging in the sense, um, like my friend Enrico, who I talk about a lot, I've never met him. I think we we started out being Twitter friends. We moved to Instagram, and I mean Instagram, uh, to Snapchat. And we, every once in a while, at least once a week, we snap back and forth. And it's like having a video call. I'm having a conversation with this dude. We're actually genuinely real friends. Yeah. And I don't know any social media ever. Mm-hmm. Where that's happened. I've made friends from Twitter, but they developed into real world friends in the sense that we didn't really become friends until we were in person. Mm-hmm. But it's, to me, that's interesting is seeing like these things develop into actual ways to communicate. And hopefully they stay that way. Like uh, I started playing around with a new one. I don't know if you've heard of it, Anchor. Oh, I've heard of it. Yeah, I haven't tried it yet. It's essentially just sending each other voicemails, I guess is a good way to say it. You know, somebody puts up two minutes or less mm-hmm. of an audio thing, and then people can audio reply, which sounds silly at first. But then uh, I've noticed in the little time that I've been using it, there's a tre- there's trends developing where people are using it almost as a crowdsourcing. So, you know, they will ask a question and then just watch all the answers. So it's, it's basically like Quora with real voices in a sense. Yeah, and, and I think something about the real voices, and it, it works, it functions in the way that you have to put it up to your ear, like the phone. Mm-hmm. So the sound quality on the voices is really good. Oh, interesting. Huh. Um, it's, it's interesting because I think that something about that makes it intimate because you, you, you can listen to it with it down, but um, when you're recording, you have to hold it to your ear, and they're, we're used to talking into phones. Sure. So there's an intimacy that's immediate right there, and I'm 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 very curious to see where it's going to develop. I haven't really got a foothold in it yet. Nobody gives a shit about anything I post, <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't say that I've invested a lot of time into it. Obviously, with the the vlog and now this, you know what's funny is the the, the it kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier, which is there's there's. I, I, you know, and the the irony about social media, at least in its current form, is that there's a, a, a stark depersonalization that happens when you start to participate a lot in personal media. Uh, I'm sorry, social media. Um, it's funny that I said Probably personal media because that's pro- that's yeah, exactly. Like that's kind of where I I mean it to go in the sense that, you know, like with the people I really cared about, um, like let's say let's say Instagram, for example, like most of the people I ended up meeting from Instagram, whether it was for my old photo business or whether it was my, the current businesses that I'm helping with, we may meet there, 
But like your Twitter uh, example, we always end up interacting outside of that, and that's where the relationship begins. Right. You know what I mean? Um, you know, the, the introduction, of course, happens in social media because that's how you find a lot of the people um, that you ultimately end up working with or for or whatever it may be. But like even with Instagram, for example, like when you, you're so right in describing it as, 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 at least in the very beginning, it was a bastion for where artists could come and find other artists, where you could you could go and find new creative thought and all this kind of stuff, right? But even the people I respect um, on Instagram, uh, some of them have gone the route of just, they might post their work one out of every four posts, and now it's just them eating a sandwich or them right. surfing in Santa Monica. I, I because don't they give get a play, shit. <laughs> they get play on it. Yeah, of course they do. And it's social validation. People get, people get bored. I found this out the hard way. People get bored if all you do is post art. Yeah. It's like, and the moment you post a picture of your face, even if you're fucking scary, ugly like me. God, how weird is that? How weird is that? Like, like I, I mean, even to this day, the, the I'm not, I'm, I'm just a normal dude. I'm not the most attractive guy in the world, but God, my selfies get more, get more views and likes than anything interesting that I've posted. And that feeds you know into I mean? the whole, into a whole nother category of fucking Ugh. vanity addiction, where it's like... What if you put up that selfie and you only get five likes on it? I mean, anything, in all honesty. Sure. Today's vlog, I was talking about the importance of sharing other people's creations that they put online and liking, stuff like that. Because I feel like we've reached such a point. I I, I don't know how many times this has happened to me. Um, all the stuff I post online. I'll see people I know in real life and they'll go, I love all the stuff you post online. Mm-hmm. And an immediate thought in my head is, really? Because I've never seen you like anything that I've ever put up. Sure. So I didn't even know if you were seeing it or not. Because, you know, the way Facebook's algorithm and all these guys have algorithms now, mm -hmm. Twitter's going to have an algorithm. I don't know if people even see it. Yeah. And I feel I, I, like th there's like a sense of apathy there. Like, how hard is it really for us to, to click that button? And now they have the different reactions and I feel like that different reactions that they added on Facebook mm -hmm. is trying to get people to use the damn button again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because people have just started to ignore. I mean, it's even tougher from a business perspective. Like, you know, I, uh, one of my Instagrams for one of my businesses, for example, like you start to think in terms of, of likes when it comes to how you're going to market to a or customer base. Or use with the family. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's even more damaging, I think, from a business perspective because you now have no real gauge, but you have a lot of, incomplete assumptions about what your customer base actually wants right you know what i mean so i mean how the heck do you how then do you use something like instagram as a true metric for what is going to be successful or not successful for your business that's really tough you know? oh, yeah and look at now they've changed the thing with the videos mm -hmm. yeah it goes to views now instead yeah, yeah how many views and then likes is secondary sure it's like they're they're working to compensate for those things but at the same time it's still based in an analytic thing which means it's it has a business mindset over personal media. Sure. And, I mean, the Facebook pages is just fucking ridiculous. I have 700 fans. Four people saw it. Tragic. You know, <laughs> what, what is the point in that? And I think that's why um, Snapchat, possibly Anchor, and uh, Periscope, and Meerkat, and apparently there's something called Super 8 out there, which I think is the same as those. Now Facebook Live. I think that's why all these things are coming into vogue right now mm -hmm. is because it's either engagement or it isn't there's no yeah. analytics involved yeah. at all either you're watching my live stream or you're not mm -hmm. and that's it there's nothing else to it sure you can add little hearts and stuff on periscope but like it doesn't track how many hearts you got i don't think mm -hmm. i gave up on periscope it was just taxing sure um 
It's pretty damn useful though. It's it's a great idea. I just didn't I didn't have a use for it for myself. I didn't really find a place to use it. Sure. So having the app and at a certain point it's just hard to keep up with everything everybody does. Sure. And I think, you know, it kinda goes it's funny that, that I kinda accidentally said that at the beginning of what we're talking about when it comes to social media because I think the movement is really towards personal media. You know what I mean? Um, in the sense that like we're we're now trying we're we're sick and tired of being living in an anonymous world with 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 people we don't really know and i think we're finally getting to the point with social media where we're just sick and tired of living in that that world of complete anonymity you know what right. i mean and we want to fucking know who these people are which is why the thing you brought up with the voice message i still like receiving phone calls yeah. you know what i mean i don't really care that much to text i would rather sit down and have coffee with somebody you know and i'm the opposite when old. it comes to the phone i love coffee <laughs> i i hate talking on the phone just because i think i have trouble processing things that people yeah, say. Yeah, but, but you like talking in person, though. So that's, yeah. so it's, that's, it's, that's the equivalent for I you, like reading you know? people's faces. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is why that, that, that sense of personal media comes back into play again. When you hear a person's voice or you see their face, it, you can't take that out of context. If right. someone's pissed, you can, you can tell. If someone's joking, you can tell. You know, like how many conversations have you had in the last two months where something you said in a text message that was meant to be snarky or sarcastic or funny was taken completely the fuck out of context and someone's now pissed off at you for three days because they thought that you said something crazy in a text message. Right. You know what I, I mean? Like I have, uh, over the years, I've, I've, I've posted about 28,000 tweets. Good God. I would say 20 of those Consist of failed jokes. <laughs> That's like, a pretty good that ratio, was, dude. <laughs> I thought that was damn funny, and nobody gave a shit. Crickets, nothing. <laughs> Even after they changed the star to a heart, it didn't change a goddamn thing. Nice. But yeah, I mean, that's a great example of what we're talking about, you know, like it's, 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 it's making social media personal media because in these, in, in this day and age, it's not even, it's not even social media anymore. I think social media is too broad of a term. It's advertising media, you know right. what I mean? And that's what most of what you see, even from creative artists that we used to see on, on, on Instagram, for example, like Mario Testino, who's one of the, a huge photographer. I used to, you know, check out his work and I used to see new photography, new photography, new projects, all that kind of stuff. But now it's just him literally advertising himself hey you know come hire me come to watch like Charmaine Olivia yeah exactly and and at some point that there was a change there there was a turn and I don't fault these people for doing that no they've you know they, there's I think I, I've come to the realization recently that there's levels of fame but they're like steps sure when you get to that step that's kind of the person you become when mm -hmm. you get to that step and it's not because um I think those of us in you know those of us that are normal <laughs> that, that have no level of fame uh we don't understand this we think it's tied to like some sort of ego but i think it's like it's almost like you're you're getting introduced into new clubs like mm -hmm. okay you can come into this you can come into this building now sure you can come back in here mm -hmm. you know you can go into the secret vip to the vip sure and what happens there is the rules change sure you're in there and the way you interact you know um i had that article that i did for Todoist and that was probably the most activity that I've had on Twitter and social medias in probably ever sure and my phone was kind of blowing up to the point where it was actually hard to keep up and I was trying to respond to everybody I can't imagine when somebody reaches a level of that first tier of fame sure and I, I saw one thing I think I sent it to you um, of the person getting all the Instagram yeah it's yeah. a soccer, like a soccer account mm -hmm. with 3 million viewers and they accidentally left their notifications on the phone Ugh. and it just looks like the phone's having a seizure because it's just, 
And I think that's, you know, like, we go, well, why don't famous people reply to tweets? Dude, they didn't see your tweet. Yeah. They're never going to see your tweet. Mm-hmm. They didn't see your comment on Instagram because it's buried with 7 million other ones. Yeah. I think Lady Gaga sees anything. Oh, good God, no. And she's not even in the height of fame anymore. Yeah. I mean, we think it, it's funny because, you know, it, it's, it's, it's funny that you say that there's tears, um, you know, when it comes to fame. Because I think that we have a lot of friends that tout certain lines. You know, like they're just on the edge of certain lines. Like, right. you know, we talk about, you know, guys like Colin or Eric, like where... They, 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 they're at a certain precipice and they have to decide now whether they want to be part of this club or part of this club. Right. And I think for a lot of them it's tough because at some point you feel like you're pandering, you know, or, right. you, or you feel like you're just literally trying to sell yourself. And there's, there's got to be, especially for guys like, like Colin, for example, like there's, there's got to be a sense of, of irkiness about that. You know, there's right. got to be a sense of just that a distasteful, uh, just, just grossness to it that, that takes away from the, 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 the integrity or the quality of what you're doing, but at the end of the day, you want to live as an artist, so you got to get paid somehow. Right. You know what I mean? So you have I to, you tell have you, to I make c- that choice. I couldn't do what he was doing. I tried. Mm-hmm. I pushed the art for a while, and then after a while, selling art and you know doing commissions and stuff like that, I started to hate it. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And I'm like, I can't do this. Sure. It's, it takes a very special skill to be able to do that um, and not have it interfere with your creativity. Sure. The reason I hated it is, is it, it, it it blocked me. Sure. Because it made me think about the things that weren't important. For To be able to turn that off, which I, I think he's really good with. Um, if you asked him the last picture he put up, mm-hmm. how many likes he got, he probably couldn't even give you a ballpark. Sure. He just doesn't think about it. And to be able to turn that off, mm-hmm. that's huge. Sure. And I have, I have difficulty doing that at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually, on my, my YouTube vlog, I turned off the view count. Mm-hmm. I, I have to, I, unfortunately, I can see it. I wish I could turn it off for myself, too. <laughs> but nobody can see how many views. Sure. And because I'm not trying to create a popularity contest in the sense I feel like, um, especially with, with YouTube, I think there's a, a culture of, oh, this has 6 million views. I probably will like it then. Mm-hmm. I wish I could turn off people being able to see how many likes there are, too. Like, just here's the video. You want to watch it? Watch it. If you don't, don't. Like, because it's not necessarily for the other people it's for me like mm-hmm. i want to divorce myself from that because i don't think i'm good at it oh yeah and i'm sh- i'm sure that the other side of that and i think i think this is kind of why i kind of backed so far off from some of my social media stuff like you know i i was posting on instagram two or three times a day at one point you mm-hmm. know um and i was on facebook god ugh, an hour a day at least of my life right. and i think that that in the last year of my life as i've become busier um i've forced myself to, 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 to remove myself from those environments in order to maintain some level of, of social sanity, you know, to not, to not dispel, you know, to not, to not basically include a sense of worth to how much interaction I was getting on my social media accounts. You right. know what I mean? And yeah, I think at that, a certain point it becomes va- like a, a hunt for validation. Sure. Absolutely. I did. I, I talked about this in the vlog today, so it's weird that I, I mentioned how everything is becoming synergist in my life everything seems to be connecting <laughs> and now we're talking about the same subject uh let me see about something oh, wow that's funny one of the things i wrote down for today was to talk about the difference between new media and old media huh. and i think we've just kind of snuck our way yeah into we've that. just basically slid into it <laughs> so i have a i have a question for you I, this occurred to me the other day um i think this fits exactly into what we're talking about now in the sense that what I've learned 
recently with doing the vlog mm-hmm. and now doing this is I, I'm conceptualizing myself differently. Sure. Um, I, I always saw myself as a writer. And writers, in my opinion, you know, from whatever I've seen growing up, are isolated. They're off doing the... I don't think you can survive being that person anymore. Sure. You can't... Unless, you mean, Stephen King can do it because he's already Stephen King. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that you can become a known writer without some sort of public persona anymore, at least sure. in the social sense. And then it occurred to me that maybe this is the new media. Sure. That, you know, vlogs and podcasts, these are the new books. Not that books are going to go away, but these are the new forms of media. Mm-hmm. That this is part of things you do. And uh, I think that's, for me, a better way to look at it than to look at it as uh, self-promotion and validation and all these things. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think the other side of that, too, and I think uh, there are a lot of assumptions that people make about things like um, Instagram or whatever. Let's just take the programs out of it and let's just take the media for what it is, right? Like a lot of people think that videos are going to replace books. Right. This is not a replacement thing. That's not the question. You know what I mean? It's just adding a different type of consumption um, for the media that you want. Like, for example, um, I take comic books, right? I used to love comic books. I used to love thumbing through them, and I used to love, you know, the, the idea of literally going through comic books with my fingers and touching the pages and all that kind of stuff. The tactile stuff mattered to me. But these days, you know, I live in an environment that doesn't allow me to store 500 pounds worth of comic books in my house. Right. And or, um, you know, I don't have the time to go to a comic book shop and literally just go through rungs and rungs of comic books, racks and racks of graphic novels. I just can't do that anymore. Right. You know what I mean? And so these days, like, I download comic books and I can literally go through them on my phone or my iPad. And I still have roughly the same experience. And at least on some level, I'm glad that I have the ability to have any experience with that at all. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and, you know, I, I think that the difficulty for a lot of people, not the difficulty, that's the wrong way to put it, but the, 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 the assumption for all the Luddites and hipsters, or Luddites and all the hipsters of the world is that these things are going to replace the good old media um, that we had. You know, when DVDs came out, people were sad that they replaced, I don't know, VHS, VHS tapes or Betamax <laughs> or whatever the hell. That's now, you know, in context, like thinking about it historically, that seems ridiculous to us. But at the time, that was a big thing. Like, right. you know, when Laserdisc came out and when DVDs came out and special features were added, like, you know, a lot of people felt like it was peeling back the curtain too much on how these things were made. But you know what? Like, I would love to see how fucking nuts David Lynch really is. You know right. what I mean? So give me a damn DVD and give me two hours worth of extra features. I would love to see those things, you know? Right. And so I think it's just a different type of consumption. Like with audiobooks, audiobooks is a great example of this. I am literally home four, five hours of my life every single day. And when I'm home, I don't want to be stuck behind a book. You know, I, 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 that's, I don't want to be, st- I, I have very limited time with the people I care about. So I want to spend that time interacting with them right. and not sitting in front of a book for two hours. You know what I mean? So when I'm driving around, which is two hours of my life every day, I would like to listen to some of the books that I haven't really had a chance to otherwise. Like, for example, you know, not the best book, not the worst book, but I would have never read The Martian if it weren't for the fact that there was an audiobook. World War Z, I would have never read, you know, the book if there wasn't an audiobook. Now, if I like the book enough, I'll go back and I'll buy the book. Like, World War Z was fascinating enough for me to go back and get the actual book and read it. Right. You know, but overall, I think that allowing, especially a person like me, the option um, to consume it a different way 
gives me the opportunity to have access to media that I would never have had the time or compulsion to look for otherwise. You know what I mean? I think that that's, I've come to a place with audiobooks as well. I was always opposed to audiobooks because I'm a huge note taker. Sure. And uh, it's difficult for me to, I mean, you can copy down what you hear, but you got to back up and play it again and back up. It's kind of a bitch. Um, but I was listening to Tim Ferriss' interview, Seth Godin, and he was talking about how he uses audiobooks, and he pretty much all he listens to is nonfiction. And he says he just listens to them over and over again to hammer the points in. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I came to the realization, it's, it's not that I don't like audiobooks, it's I don't like fiction in audiobooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I yeah. need to see the language. Sure. And I, that comes, that's the writer in me. I need to see the language. <laughs> and in an in a audiobook, I can write down the general idea. I don't need to write word for word what the person said. I can write down the general concept. But what I've found lately that's kind of funny is I ride my bike to the coffee shop every day to work. I like podcasts because I can listen to them while I'm riding. I hate doing audiobooks on there because I hate having to stop the bike and be the guy on the side of the road with his notepad out <laughs> for like five minutes rewinding and trying to copy down, you know, like, so I avoid it. Well, do you think some of that is just teaching yourself a new way to consume that media? Because actually, I. I the, 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 the interview with the, the Ferris interview you're talking about is, is a good example. Like for me, for example, um, with nonfiction, I will literally just listen to that same audiobook seven, eight, nine times over and over and over again. And I actually kind of have my own de facto playlist of topics that I will listen to on a given week, for example, and I will literally just listen to them over and over and over again. Right. You know what I mean? And I feel like that, I, I, I feel like that could be done with fiction too. Sure, the sure. The language would hammer itself in. But I also think that that's an obstacle in and of itself is the limited time thing. Sure. It's like I know for a fact that reading and rereading is essential to learning. Agreed. Yeah. And I do less and less of it because there's so much shit out there that I want to read. And it's a battle. I mean, I try, I try to do 12 books a year, one book a month, rereading something I've read in the past. Mm-hmm. I try to go back to the oldest thing that I can't remember anything from it, refresh it in my brain. But even sometimes that's a battle where I'm like, oh, this book that I used to like kind of sucks now. Yeah, and I think a lot of that, oh, it's funny that you say that. God, it's so weird how synergistic some of this stuff is. I was literally thinking about that on the way here. Um, what I, and basically what, what my conclusion was is that every, every 10 years or so, I need to reread all the books I thought were awesome. Right. And I need to reevaluate with the current context of who I am, even poets and all that kind of stuff. Like, I need to reread them to understand them again. Um, totally. In, in, in the context of who I am as a person now. Like, I, I was reading Emerson again, for, of all things. And reading, reading Emerson at 12 and at 22 and at 32 is an entirely different experience. That's the experience I have with Catcher in the Rye. Oh, Catcher in the Rye is another great example. Yeah, I mean, I, I, read, Catcher in the Rye. I read Catcher in the Rye again last year. And God, it was such a different book to me. Like it was, it was, it was almost like watching. It, it's almost like watching the Princess Bride at thirty-five. You know right. what I mean? Like there's such a weird simplicity to it. There's a sense of nostalgia, but there's also a weird simplicity to it that that comes from having a, a an emotional and intellectual depth that you didn't have when you first experienced it. Right. Know? I feel like the first time I read it as a young man, like Holden was almost like a hero. Sure. And then the next time when I was, you know, in my twenties. <laughs> 
He was an anti-hero. Yeah. He was a rebel. Mm-hmm. Now he's just kind of an an, an annoying. Yeah, he's a little, he's a punk prick. ass little bitch. Yeah, yeah. Like I <laughs> I, I remember I, I God when I read it again last year, I'm just like, who the fuck is this? Why did I idolize this guy? Because at the time, I didn't have the emotional depth to understand the context in which he was doing what he was doing. Yeah, we didn't understand that he was psychologically unhealthy. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and that he was making shitty, selfish decisions that that would affect other people adversely, but would ultimately affect him positively. You know right. what I mean? So, I mean, that's tough. And, and I feel like it, that's not just how we experience, um, you know, old books and stuff like that, but that's how we experience some friendships from time to time, too, you know? Like, we go back and we look at, at some of our friends and we go, are they really as good of people as we thought they were? Or it's like looking at old people? photographs. You yeah. see somebody, you're like, I was really stoked to be taking a picture of this person. I have mm-hmm. no idea who this person is. <laughs> <laughs> like, apparently, and, and you're at that stage of life when you wrote on the back of the photo. Mm-hmm. Nobody does this anymore because we're old men. Yeah. Uh, but you wrote on the back of the photo, it says, you know, like, me and Steve. Mm-hmm. And even then, you're looking at the back of it, and you're going, who the fuck is Steve? Who is Steve? <laughs> <laughs> he was so important to me that I didn't have to write down his last name. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I have no, no idea who he is. I found one time, I found like a... A letter from a girl in a box and it was like this really like emotional deep letter <laughs> and i am reading it and i started at the beginning i'm like wow this is intense and i'm reading it, i get to the end and i'm like who is that like this 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 poor girl had poured her heart out to me and you know it had been 25 years since i'd seen the letter i didn't even know who she was anymore sure. wow that's crazy <laughs> And I think a lot, some of that, too, applies to us as individuals. I know I, I went through this over the last couple of years, too, is that, you know, I, I, we, don't, we don't stay static people, you know. Um, and we sometimes become, become more selfish or selfless depending on our situation, our circumstances. And so I think that not only can I apply that to, to um, you know, uh, people that, that I'm friends with or, or people that I respect and love, like reevaluating those, those friendships or relationships, but I can reevaluate that with myself, too. And I feel like in giving myself a little bit more more leeway to have been not the best version of myself over the last few years, I feel like I can now understand why some of my friendships are what they are, too. Because people aren't always going to be their best. You know, sometimes they have their bright moments and their dark moments. But it's understanding at the core who they really are. Like, right. I think, um, you know, I, I was listening to a podcast with, uh, you know, um, Nerdist, obviously, because I listen to that podcast way too much. <laughs> but Hardwick was talking to Craig Ferguson, Um and they were both talking about alcoholism and how they both fought their way through it and who they are now because of the journeys and you know the trials and tribulations that they went through during their alcoholism. And I think Craig Ferguson said something that really struck a chord with me. It's really simple and really dumb um, in its own way, but there's a wisdom to it that's really magical, which is treat yourself like a person you like. And I wow. think that that's, it's so shockingly simple. But I don't think that I've treated myself like a person I've liked for, God, five years. Yeah. And only until very recently, like probably the last like maybe three or four months of my life, have I actually started to treat myself like a friend. Yeah. And it's really weird to think of it that way, but it's tough. Like you're, because usually, especially as artists, and I know you're like this, you're so overly critical of your own stuff both as an artist and as a person. Like, you wonder about your decisions. You wonder whether you're doing the right or the wrong thing. And you wonder whether or not you're, you're, you're making the proper choices that make you a better person or a better artist. But sometimes you just have to make the choices that you're going to make because those are the choices you have in front of them, in front of you, whether they're good or bad. You know? right. And that's a tough thing to keep in context, man. I feel like to some degree, um, one of the best choices I've made recently was doing the vlog mm-hmm. because it destroyed a lot of those things for me in the sense that I, I, 
I don't have time to perfect. I mean, I, I try to do as good as I can with editing. Mm-hmm. I'm still learning, but I don't have to. I, I got to get it out before the next day. And the more time I spend editing is I do it standing up, too. The more time I Whoa. do that, <laughs> the more I'm wasting of the rest of my day. You sure. know, when I started, it took me eight hours to edit a video. Jeez. I have it down to about an hour and a half now, which is reasonable. But it made me kill that inner critic. Um, plus, I was stuck with the footage I had. So if I was making an ass of myself, here you go, world. Here's me making an ass of myself. <laughs> if I'm misspeaking, you know, I can only edit out so much. You can, eh. And it forced me to not only keep that schedule, to force myself to create something every day and to put it out and expose myself every day. But it forced me to accept that it's going to be imperfect. Sure. And... Ironically, I was talking today in the in the vlog about the idea of letting people know when you appreciate things. And in the last week, I've got more feedback on the vlog than almost anything I've ever done. And it's the most imperfect thing that I've ever made. Sure. Tells you something. <laughs> and and that is that is goes to the core of what you're saying there is the idea of like the way we're looking at ourselves, the way we're looking at the world is probably wrong. Sure. We're probably nestled into some sort of self-loathing, mm-hmm. and it's probably unworthy, and we've probably perpetuated it because it feels safe. Yeah, uh, like like the Nirvana lyric: "I miss the comfort in being sad," mm-hmm. because sometimes depression, all those things, can be comforting because you're used to them, and hating yourself can be one of those things where you're like. Yeah, that's just what I do. Well, I mean, you look at guys like us, for example, right? Like, I mean, we're both writers by nature, so I think part of it, there's no more self-deprecating or or most depressed. Defecating? Defecating. (laughs) Yeah, sounds about right. (laughs) Uh, But there's there's no more self-critical group of themselves than writers, at least in my mind. I mean, I I see this with painters. I see this with other artists. I mean, that's the one beneficial thing I think we have from our perspective is that we just happen to be friends with a shit ton of artists in various different mediums. Um, Right. And I mean, there's no there's no group that falls prey to paralysis by analysis more than writers of any group of artists I've ever met. I, do you think that that's uh, because by nature of the art, we have to spend the most time alone? Yeah, I think that's part of it. And I think that it's very easy to get into your own head about it. But I also think that, that it goes back to what, what you were just saying, which is, you know, being critical of yourself is easy because it, it, it doesn't force activity. You know, it, 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 it doesn't it doesn't motivate you or, or incentivize you to complete something because right. you want it to be perfect, which is the older I get, the more the more full of shit. I realize how 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 that 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 principle is. You know what I mean? Of course. Like you have to just put shit out. You just like I do it. You, you and know? I've talked about it before when I told you the number one thing on a first draft is always momentum. Sure. Sure. Because there's a God, sometimes I remember things that people have written and I don't remember who it was. Mm hmm. But there was a book I was reading about writing, and it talked about the idea of looking at an idea in your head when it's not in the physical world, it's amorphous. Sure. It's continually changing. So because it's amorphous, it's free of imperfections. Sure. You can look at it as perfect. I have this great idea for a book. That You know what? No one ever says I have a shitty idea for a book. <laughs> it's always I have a brilliant idea for a book. I have a great idea. 
because it's amorphous. We can imagine it as being great. Mm -hmm. But the moment you put it into the world, you start to see the imperfections in it. And that's why the hardest step for any artist is to go from the conceptual phase mm -hmm. into the creation phase, putting your ass into the chair. Sure. Because the moment you start making it is the moment you start realizing that it's never going to be the thing that you imagined it to be. God, I think you just described why relationships fail. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's a hell of a jump, but that makes so much sense. It's it's a weird <laughs> thing, but it's true, and I think that that's that's where the fear of of doing things in general comes from is that fear of something not being the way that you thought it was going to be, and I'm of the opinion that most of the great things that come about, especially in art, mm -hmm. are from people being unable to make the thing that they wanted to make. Sure. The Beatles wanted to be Jerry Lee Lewis, and mm -hmm. they wanted to be Chuck Berry. Sure. But they couldn't. Yeah. So what they made was the Beatles. Sure. The Stones wanted to be all of the great blues artists like Lightning Hopkins. Mm -hmm. They couldn't do it. They yeah. were just skinny English kids. Yeah. So they made something new. Mm -hmm. And that was through their limitations all of that comes from limitations and i don't i just i like i feel like i'm always hammering this point into people but it's like just do shit mm -hmm. because once you start i said do shit not do shit yeah uh <laughs> just want to clarify for the listeners yeah, let's make sure let's make sure that although maybe maybe douche is a an apt metaphor because you need to clean out those misconceptions sure and get over that fear because once you start doing it and you're forced to forced to do it by yourself it changes like we're talking about with the tears of fame there's there's tears of creation mm -hmm. it's like i am this now mm -hmm. and i can do this now uh everything becomes routine you know that editing it gets easier every day sure just, just becomes a tool yeah and it's you know and i'll introduce a new tool and i and you know in two years my editing will be as good as casey neistat's sure but then he'll be 10 years ahead of me but that's sure. just the way it works but if I had never started it, if I had done the first one and went, fuck, this is nothing like Neistat's, mm -hmm. and stopped there, I would never get to that level. Well, it's funny because you, what you're describing, at least, is, is something that I've, God, I've had so many conversations with, with artists and friends about this, is, is the difference between fear and excitement is such a fine line. They're the same thing. I mean? Yeah, they're, they're inherently the same thing. And so, and so I think that... that converting whatever fear that is to, to a form of excitement about doing something comes down to one, you know, I, I forget who I was talking to um, about this, but it was a, a friend of mine who was really successful. And I, I, one of the things that he always told me was, you know, in, in almost every avenue um, or in every environment that he's worked, whether it's creatively or professionally, the one thing that he always found is a commonality between really successful people. Um, and this guy worked for Tesla at some point and had, you know, um, conversations with Elon Musk on a weekly basis. And one thing that he said he always recognized was that successful people never question whether they should do something or not. They just do. Right. And whether or not it becomes successful or not is irrelevant to the fact that they're just going to do things. It goes back I mean? to that, that, that um, adage, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than for permission. Sure, sure. And it's like you're doing that with yourself. It's easier to forgive yourself for doing something imperfectly mm -hmm. than to ask yourself if you should do it. Yeah. 
Because there's always a million reasons not to do something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No one's ever said there's absolutely no reason I shouldn't make this movie. Sure, sure. <laughs> well, I mean, you take the other side of that, too. It's funny because I was just thinking about this uh, last week. Like, if you compare a guy like David Lynch uh, to a, a director, I don't know if you know much about Wong Kar Wai. Um, yeah, you know, a little he, bit. He, he, he's, Chunking Express, right? Yeah, Chunking Express, you know, In the Mood for Love. Like, he's a rabid, almost crippling perfectionist. Versus a guy like David Lynch, who would put a tinfoil hat on the dog and film it walking down the desert street. That's actually happened, too. So, I mean, right. that's not even... And, and, and the difference between the two, the, 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 there's a reason why Wong Kar Wai has maybe seven movies out in his entire career in Hollywood uh, slash Hong Kong cinema. Um, versus a guy like David Lynch, who literally is just probably filming a, his socks right now in his living room because he just wants to do for Twin Peaks. Shit. Yeah, exactly, for <laughs> Twin Peaks, and that's going to be out in a week. But, you know, they, ultimately, it's just a difference in mindset. Ultimately, the motivations are essentially the same. I want to create, but I'm not sure whether I can create something good or not, but who gives a shit? And I think the who gives a shit part is the part that's missing from successful versus unsuccessful. Or maybe, maybe it's not even a who gives a shit. Maybe that just isn't even there at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not one way or another. True. It just never occurs to them. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It's like and I want to make this. I'm going to make this. The sure. end. There's that that middle block mm-hmm. is just excised. Yeah, and I feel like I'm getting to the point where I'm like that. I didn't question whether I should do this podcast. Mm-hmm. I said I'm going to do it. And yeah. if it and if it's awful, which so far I don't think it is. Yeah, I think so it's far, okay. <laughs> We've done. I right. really like what we're talking about. Sure. Let's just see if uh, anybody else does. But I don't. I. I didn't question it. I just knew it was the time to do it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you were down obviously made it a lot easier. Yeah, what's funny is we've we've talked about it for a while, but it 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 didn't feel quite right until now. And I think that that's 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 something that that I think artists artists need to pay attention to more is is where they are. And it goes back to the thing we were talking about about reading books at certain parts of your life. Right. I think I was finally ready to read The Fountainhead when I was twenty eight. You know what I mean? Or I was finally... I don't think I'm ready yet. Yeah, yeah true. Anne Ryan is a whole different conversation in and of itself. But I mean, but I feel like there were certain things that I was ready to consume in the time I was ready to consume them. Like, for example, I didn't really quite get The Shining until I saw it at 30. I'm like, Jeep Kubrick is a fucking genius. Right. You know what I mean? Like, when I was 22 and I saw it, I thought, oh, Kubrick's cool. But it was more so... I fell into the hipster thing, which was I, I liked Kubrick because Kubrick was Kubrick and not because I actually respected the movies for what they were. Right. You know what I mean? Or like 2001 and Space Odyssey. That is one of the most full of shit movies in the history of cinema, but it's also fucking brilliant. You know it hasn't I mean? aged. Yeah, it hasn't aged at all. But the thing is, when you watch it when you're younger, you like it because of what it is and not necessarily because of what, what it's, what it, it, the ideas that come across from it. You know and I, mean? I feel like that's one thing that is kind of a bummer about social media that I don't think can be helped is we're so connected, not in the personal way, like was what we're craving, but we're so connected to information sure. at all times that it's hard to be aloof. Sure. And I think to a certain degree, being an artist and an appreciator of art requires a level of aloofness. When I watched 2001 A Space Odyssey, Odyssey I didn't know anybody who had ever seen it. It wasn't recommended to me by anybody. I didn't even know what the hell it was. I didn't even. I don't even know if I knew who Kubrick was at the time. I was in Blockbuster Video, and I said, "This looks interesting," and I brought it home, just like I did with Akira Kurosawa. The first Akira Kurosawa film I watched, I had no idea anything about it. Watched both of them with complete ignorance, and that complete ignorance allowed me to absorb it for what it was. Huh, interesting. And I think that I try to cultivate that in myself. Um, I try. I mean, especially with music, I have no idea 
what is on the radio. Mm-hmm. I don't even know. I I don't even know if I've heard popular songs other than that Adele song because I can't escape it. <laughs> it's fucking everywhere, and it makes me want to slit my wrists. Um, but there's other things that I don't even know. Like for for example, Taylor Swift. I don't know if I've heard one of her songs or not mm-hmm. because I don't know what she sounds like. Sure, I might have heard her song a bunch of times, but not known it was her. Mm-hmm. And it's not uh, a level of coolness like I'm trying to be so non-mainstream. Mm-hmm. Is I'm trying to cultivate that ignorance sure. in the sense of um, creating my own culture. Sure, these books. I don't know what's a bestseller. These are the books that looked interesting on the shelf. Mm-hmm. And when I pick it up, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have that problem? God, do you wish you could just go back and hear your ba- some of your bands fresh again? Like, I remember, oh, yeah. you know, one of the bands that we talked about both liking is, you know, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. Oh, adorable. And I, I absolutely love them. But I think part of the reason why they hold such a special place in my pantheon of musicians is because no one told me about them. Right. You know, versus one of my other Pantheon bands, Radiohead. I love Radiohead. But everybody but Jesus, knows. Jesus, I could not, <laughs> people could not shut the fuck up about Radiohead when I started listening to them, you know? Right. And it's funny because most of the people who, who told me about Radiohead were telling me about this song called Creep and blah, blah, blah. And actually, in retrospect, it's the song I like the least from that era of Radiohead. Right. Like the song that's the B-side to Radiohead, which is Faithless the Wonder Boy, is actually way more fucking brilliant of a song than Creep is. And even in hearing Radiohead talk about Creep as the song that it was to them, they even thought it was a throwaway song. Right. You know what I mean? I've always liked Bulletproof best on that album. Oh, Bulletproof. Oh, great. I mean, Bulletproof, I think, is next album. Um, But my point ultimately is that I wish I could have heard some of the, the, or seen some of the movies like Blade Runner. I wish I could have seen Blade Runner without the mountains of praise that it had gotten before I saw it. I luckily did get to do that. Oh, you bastard. God, it's so unique. I think it's because I was behind on it. Sure, sure. Um, I might have seen it as a kid. I'm not sure, because mm. uh, my uncle was a big was is a big sci-fi fantasy person. Sure, sure. Um, like I saw he I saw Dune with him. I remember I was in the living room of this house. Funny that you say Dune. Dune is one of those. The, the, no one had told me anything about Dune, and I picked up that book because it looked brilliant. cool. Oh my! It, one of the most brilliant pieces of writing I've ever Talk read. Talk about synergy. Yeah, fear is the mind killer. <laughs> I'm going to get that tattooed on my ass when we're done with this <laughs> fucking podcast. We got, I got a couple guitar strings over here and some, I got some Indian ink. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to go prison style on yeah, it, man. Maybe we should go with a bicep <laughs> yeah. instead of a cheek. No, but that's really funny that you say that, though, because there, I, I bet if we went through our lists of favorite movies or, 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 or you know bands or whatever it is, or even songs, like... I remember one of the songs that I really love from Radiohead, Paranoid Android, one of the best songs ever. Um, but I didn't really know much about the song before I'd heard it because no one had talked Because it was a weird song. It was a seven-minute ballad, very, very reminiscent of like an old Queen song. With, yeah, with that weird like crescendo. Yeah, and yeah. So, and, like, and so it's, a really, it's a really swoopy movie song. And so a lot of people in popular music who had liked a song like Creep, which is the standard verse, chorus, verse, freaking, you know, three-and-a-half-minute-long radio song, were totally turned off by the epic, monstrous song that was Paranoid Android. Right. But that's that's my favorite Radiohead song. And those are the same people that were terrified by Kid A. Yeah, absolutely. Like, whoa, there's like, no what instruments. What the fuck is this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then I think about other, other bands, um, like Queen, for example, another one of my favorite bands. But the song that I like most from Queen is probably the song that's least known, which is the Prophet song. And the Prophet song is a brilliant, brilliant song, but it's the same thing as Paranoid Android. It's this long, weird, sweepy, 
totally innovative, completely genius song that sounds nothing like any of their other stuff. Why is it some of the greatest songs or like things that will never get played on the radio? Oh, sure. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. That is too heady. We cannot play that. Or, you know, like, even like, kind of baffles me that, you know, blues, the original blues, there's so much grit and meat oh, yeah. to that yeah, music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's not a radio station in America that's playing that. Mm-hmm. Like, music, to me, music, art, all of it, none of it has an expiration date. Sure. You know, it becomes cooler. And I think that's why I love Black Rebel Motorcycle Club is because when that band came out, they weren't attached to anything. Sure. They sounded like nothing else that was coming out at that time. Maybe you could stretch it and say White Stripes. To a point, yeah. But there, there's a psyched, 60s psychedelic plus blues plus that 70s. I mean, there's just all of that stuff, gospel. It's all tied up into that little band. Mm-hmm. And nobody else was doing that, really. And there's an organic shittiness to them, too, that makes them really cool. And, it's, and what it is, is it's, it's a bunch of guys doing exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. They're going, I like this kind of music. Let's make this kind of music. Sure. What's on the radio? Fuck if I know. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, especially as, as, as writers, I think that we can fall in that trap, too, is that whether we like it or not, uh, you know, at least, at least in my opinion, good writers read. You know what I mean? They have and, to. And whether we like it or not, if we read too much of a certain style, it enters into our voice as writers. Always. You know what I mean? And I think there's a danger to that. You know what I mean? I think there's a danger to... I like, think that indulgence is necessary, though. To a point. Like, I feel like there, you can't have too many heroes. And I think that's the best way to put it for me. Right. Um, like, with, for example, I love Cormac McCarthy. I loved The Road. Yeah, me you know? too. And I, I read the shit out of that book. I've, I've probably read it four times now. And I've listened to it another nine or ten times on audiobook. And I will tell you that whether I liked it or not, it seeped into my poetry. You know what totally. I mean? Totally. The and darkness. I, I can see that. Yeah, exactly. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, but I think you can overdo it. You can you become too much of, of that voice. You know what, what I mean? think about a lot is I think about um, Public Image Limited, what Johnny Lydon's band, uh-huh. After the Sex Pistols. Oh, oh, wow. That's going back. Okay. And that band kind of incorporated a lot of different sounds. But that was, I think, up until that point in music, not just with Public Image Limited, but just post-punk in general, mm-hmm. is the moment where things started really bleeding together in a way that, you know, like the original rock and roll is uh, rhythm and blues mixed together, right? It's, yeah. it's country and mm-hmm. it's blues, it's white, it's black, it's all of that just meshed together. Mm-hmm. But then that became something. Sure. And then that sound standardized for a while. Yeah. All of a sudden, you had punk come out, which was just like, fuck it all, fuck all the rules, mm-hmm. let's just keep it simple, going yeah. back to 50s rock in a way. But then the post-punk is when all of a sudden, like, reggae started bleeding in, and disco started bleeding in, mm-hmm. and all these you weird some influences, in there. Yeah, world yeah, yeah. music started sure. bleeding in, Fila Kuti. Yeah. And I think that indulgence is important, mm-hmm. but you have to be able to allow yourself more than one indulgence. Mm-hmm. Because what you're talking about, that is how you become a writer. It's like, I started out, everything I wrote sounded like Vonnegut. Because you like Kurt Vonnegut. Right. Duh. And then I read Kerouac. Yeah. Now everything I wrote for a little while sounded like Kerouac. Mm-hmm. But then over time, everything I wrote sounded like Kerouac and Vonnegut mixed together. Sure, sure, sure. And then I found Hunter S. Thompson. Mm-hmm. And then the same thing happened. And then that was mixed in there. Oh, and yeah. Bukowski was mixed yeah, yeah. in there. Mm-hmm. And then Proust. And all these other things. And what you end up becoming is an amalgam of all of your obsessions. Sure, sure, sure. So I think that that, 
I think that's an important step mm-hmm. in becoming an artist is allowing yourself that indulgence to mimic. Sure. Because that, uh, what do they and say? Not, and not being scared to do it. Right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, I think that just in general, fear is just the enemy of everything creative. Yeah. And I, I feel like the other side of that is true, not just, and, and obviously writing is a very clear medium where voices become really defined, but I think that's true for music, for art. I mean, Absolutely. if we think about, like with me, for example, like I, I know that whenever I do anything musically, it's going to be a combination of maybe five artists, you know what I mean? Um, you know, I really, really liked Queen, so it's in there. I really like Radiohead, so that's probably mixed in there. I was a huge Trent Reznor fan at some point in my life, so that's probably mixed in there as well, you know what I mean? I absolutely love Johnny Cash. So right. that's probably in there. And then there's a weird part of me that, that I don't talk about at parties that really likes Tom Waits. You know what I mean? Yep. And so wait, I so and Waits. so all those weird little pieces that have nothing to do with each other filter into my work, whether it's my, my, my music or whether it's my writing. There's there's little bits and pieces of that everywhere. So I totally agree with you. I think that that, that the amalgam or, or the allowance for, for, for those influences to really take hold in your creative personality is an important part of being creative. But I also feel like you can go too far in one direction. Oh, there's always too far in everything, right? Oh, yeah, of course. I see that. You know where I see that um, that surfacing come through the most, actually, is when I'm playing the guitar every day. Sure. Because there's things that I've bled into my playing that I didn't... You know, One day I'll go over there, I'll pick it up, and I'll be playing around, and all of a sudden I go, oh, this kind of sounds like Soundgarden. Yeah. Not a surprise, there was a certain point in my life where I listened to a considerable amount of sure. Soundgarden. Or this but, sounds a little Morello. <laughs> but then all of a sudden I'll be playing something and I'll be like, this sounds like Van Halen. And I don't even like Van Halen. <laughs> <laughs> but you couldn't escape Van Halen. Right. You know, like whether I like it or not, like I, I tried to write a song three weeks ago and it sounded like fucking Toto. You know what I mean? So what do you <laughs> I love Toto. Yeah, though. Toto's sweet, dude. Whatever. I'm not I'm not I'm not too ashamed of that, you know. But somebody had to write a love song about Patricia Arquette. Oh my god, dude. Have you ever seen that documentary she did? What? No. Uh, I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> I'm going to have to look it up and put it in the show notes. By the way, we have show notes. Oh, sweet. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll mention everything we talked about in here. Um, it's I think it's called the Patricia Arquette Experience. Huh, interesting. But it's her interviewing all the music, because apparently she's just a music um, whore. Aficionado. I said it the nice way, you said it the mean way. <laughs> it's, 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 it's hard to say because it's kind of true in both ways. Sure. Um, she just loves music and knows all these people in the music business, but it's also apparent throughout the thing that she slept with a lot of them. Uh, okay. Obviously, she slept with somebody in Toto. Sure. Um, although that might not be true. Yeah, that might be an admiration song. I'm not sure. But there's a weird sequence in there that's worth watching when she's interviewing Peter Gabriel, mm-hmm. and it becomes fairly apparent that they've had a relationship. Oh, man. And it's, it's actually a really good documentary, I thought. I mean, I haven't seen it for... Probably ten years. God, I gotta up. see that. It sounds great. Like mentioning, uh, you know, Peter Gabriel for getting his socks in her bedroom or some shit. That'd be awesome. It, it's not. <laughs> it's not apparent necessarily in what they're saying, but yeah. it's just the way that they're interacting with each other that feels like they've been intimate. Sure, sure. And sure. he looks like a monk, by the way. Have you seen what he looks? Oh right yeah, now? he looks weird now, dude. It's yeah. trippy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's weird. It's it's like seeing Sting again. You know, it, it, yeah. But Sting in the opposite direction, though. Sting has actually stayed exactly the same for like thirty years. Yeah, it's really bizarre. That guy looks exactly. Bowie. Yeah. He, Ah, uh, don't even talk about Bowie. I know, I'm still. Oh uh, man, I'm still. That that crushes me on many levels. I I don't know that I'll ever get over it. I mean, oh, yeah. like, there's a certain point in my life where my life was Bowie. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that I was like absorbing everything he did. I think I just had like three albums, but I just was so soaked into those three albums, and just him as a person. Was you know, it the early stuff that you were into? 
it was kind of across the board. It, I mean, it was Ziggy Stardust. Uh-huh. Uh, shit, what was that album called? Changes? No. Was that Hunky for- Dory. Uh-huh. Hunky Dory. And then it was uh, Let's Dance. Mm. So it kind of spread out throughout there. Let's Dance is just brilliant to me because it's Bowie, but then there's also Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a funkiness to that that's really unique. Yeah, I can't believe I listened to that for so many years and didn't recognize that that was Stevie Ray Vaughan. Really? Because every note that he rings in every one of those songs, uh-huh. you're like, that's oh, it's it. damn that's obvious. Him. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, that's um, weird, huh? It might be because I didn't know Stevie Ray Vaughan very well at the mm-hmm. time, but um, you know, he was he was like a he still is a blueprint to me, Bowie. Yeah, in the sense that he was an amazing artist. Uh, everybody that worked with him would say that. They'd never worked with somebody who had so much control yeah. over his voice. He would do something. He would sing it. Mm-hmm. And then he'd say, uh, let me do that again. That one had a little bit too much of whatever emotion. Sure. And he would do it, and it would just be minutely different. Mm-hmm. But you could tell it was different, and it worked better. Huh. And he had that control. But he was also a painter. Yeah. He was also a brilliant actor. Yeah. He's a great actor, sure. His, his Andy Warhol yeah. was fantastic. His Pontius Pilate in The Last mm-hmm. Temptation of Christ. And let's not even talk about uh, um, Labyrinth Man. <laughs> the only person I can think that compares in that level of creativity and being so good at both is Tom Waits. Yeah. Tom yeah. Waits is a genius as far as music. He's also a fantastic actor. God, what was the name of that fishing show? Fishing with John. John Lurie. Yeah, yeah, John Lurie yeah. And, actually, uh, and I are actually Twitter friends. What? Yeah, it's funny. Nice. Yeah, he's, I, he's a nice dude. I must have seen that episode. I've now watched ever since you you called it to my attention. I've must I must have watched it like nine, ten. Dude, the, the Tom Waits so episode funny. is so good. It's so good, where man. It's where so he's, good. He's, he's, uh, he's just he's hammered. <laughs> he's seasick on the boat. And he's yeah, like, yeah. Ugh. And then it gives him the fit. You know, the little fish to bait. And Tom is just looking at it. And John goes, is, "You need some help there." Because you know you said yeah, yeah, you got uh-huh. you got to take the hook and you got to stab it through both of their eyes mm-hmm. and put it through the skull. Yeah, and he's like, Ugh. and there's just this a grunt of misery, but it's also very Tom Waits. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's like, do you need? Some, John goes, do you need some help there? And he's like, yeah, maybe you, uh, <laughs> maybe you better do it. Uh, we made eye contact. We established a relationship. Yeah, for, that's got to be. We got to put that in the show notes at least five times because anyone who hasn't seen God, that, I hope that's if on you, YouTube or something. If you even kind of like Tom Waits, you have to find. That. I actually ended up finding it on YouTube, so okay, I, I know for a fact that it's there at least as of six months ago. Um, but yeah, I mean that's a great example. Oh God, Tom Waits. Um, but yeah, one of the one of the guys who just transcends genres and mediums. Like, doesn't matter what he does, and he's time. just good at it. Yeah, yeah, he just doesn't give a shit what what year it is. Yeah, irrelevant. I think his only contact with the modern world as far as like what's popular and what's not is through his son, mm-hmm. who actually on the the last album and maybe the album before that did some drumming for him. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Interesting. But he's also, uh, I think he makes hip-hop music as well. What? Like he's totally into that and like, so Tom Waits listens to hip-hop now. Wow, that's cool. Obviously, would... he still listens to all the other Oh, cities, sure. So. I would love to see a collaboration between Tom Waits and some hip-hop artist. That'd be like hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, that'd be so cool. I wouldn't not I, Kanye. I wouldn't put it past him though. I mean, what's one of the albums that we talked about liking and never would have guessed that would have happened? Um, the Roots and Elvis Costello. Oh. God, the fucking that's, genius. It might, be, it might be one of the best albums by both of them. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I actually think that that's true. Well, I mean, Elvis Costello's had great individual right. bits and pieces here and there, but, the connection but not of that, one complete oh. one complete pro- uh, project from beginning to end that had that much cohesion. 
and just that much depth to it musically. Oh, the, God, it's the such chemistry a great, is unbelievable. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I would have never guessed. <laughs> I would have never I guessed. I mean, Questlove, from what I've seen, is like pro- probably one of the coolest people in the world. Well, he's a virtuoso, music, virtuoso musician, too. He's also just or... a really cool dude. He's on, he's on Anchor. Mm-hmm. And all he does on Anchor is talk to, ask questions of other people. Huh, like cool. he, he, he's, he's interviewed other people. Yeah. Oh, like, wow. And which is, instead of like focusing on himself, which sure. is, it makes me think he's a very generous person. Quest Love, God, one of those guys. I think uh, that kind of bums me out sometimes. I'm like, why doesn't somebody like that get more attention instead of like Kanye? Well, maybe maybe it's because he doesn't want it for money. Know? Yeah, I mean, Kanye's Kanye's I, as much for for whether you love him or hate him, Kanye's a marketing genius. You know what I mean? Sometimes I think sometimes. he screwed himself up this time. Sure, but I mean, you know that a, that uh, the new album is streaming on Pornhub. Oh, really? No, I did not. I'm know like that. That, that kind of reeks of desperation. Yeah, it? totally. That's weird. I didn't know that. Huh? Somebody's gonna hate the fact that I just hated on Kanye. But tough but shit. the other side of that too is that I think a guy like Questlove doesn't necessarily want it. You know, I yeah. think he's I think he's good with where he is. You know, like he plays I, late he night. And he's always it. been there. He gets to do what he loves for a living and work with amazing people. I, I want to read his book. Oh yeah, that's there's a. It's book It's been out. on my to read list forever. What's the name of it? Mo Better Blues. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I, 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 I'm curious as to what the contents of that book would be. It's about music and mm-hmm. about, I think, to some degree, it's autobiographical as well. Sure. Uh, but I think it's his, if I remember correctly, it's his life with music. Mm. So he talked about hearing Prince for the first time and just pretty much everything that would be amazing in a music book. Sure, sure. From an amazing musician. Right. So that's exactly. double whammy. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, should we call it? Yeah, sure, I guess. Uh, let's end it abruptly and weird like we yeah. should. Yeah. Well, Willy Wonka's almost over. Oh, jeez. So yeah, all the kids are dead. We're, and, in the, uh, we're in the TV room. Mike TV is about to get shrunk. Yeah, I don't understand how no one realized that, that Willy Wonka is just a homicidal maniac. But, you know, other than but that. But Gene Wilder's a genius. Yeah, Gene Wilder's a freaking genius, so you forgive it. 